Okay, so like fights about uh, people wanting their own way. Uh, we want this church carpet, this color, that color, those kind of dysfunctional stuff. What makes a dysfunctional church a dysfunctional church? I think when they lose focus on their purpose. Okay. So kind of losing an evangelistic zeal, maybe becoming ingrown or inward facing, that can make a church dysfunctional. Yep. Yoga say, uh, allowing, getting away from teaching correctly from the Bible. Uh, mm. Getting away from that, allowing cultural and societal influences to kind of make your uh, message or sermon not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, So kind of stepping away from the Bible as your main source or your main focus and then just sort of, you know, preaching your own opinions or, or you know, some kind of going through the newspaper and saying, hey, well, let's, what do we talk about today, you know, about this issue or that issue, being a little bit more reactive to what's happening in the world. Yeah, good, good. Any other thoughts? Yes. But it also seemed that their main focus was their upcoming annual barbecue. Okay. So much emphasis on that. A lot of barbecue, not a lot of uh, Jesus, the Bible, discipleship. I've had that experience too, uh, not with the barbecue issue, but uh, we went and visited a church. It seemed like a great church, but it was weird. Uh, we knew some people at the church, and they talked to us. No one else did the whole time. And we got there like, uh, you know, we got there 15 minutes early. We grabbed a cup of coffee. We were s smiling, making eye contact. Hey, you know, like, I mean, I talked to like little kids in the church, you know, but uh, yeah, it was weird. It, it was, uh, I was like, this is very strange. <laughs> it's like not one person, you know. So, but that happens sometimes. Yes. Okay, so when the leaders are following and the followers are leading? Usually the followers and the followers are just leading the leaders. So it's kind of like putting out fires. You know, somebody says, well, hey, I got this issue, and then you're kind of running to catch up with them. or pitching ears, just doing whatever pleases the mass. Well, that's different than what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say people are actually shooting at you during the church service. You know, I thought maybe you were going to be drawing on your chaplain experience, you know, when bullets are flying overhead. It's a little bit dysfunctional. No, that's good. That's good. Yes? When a single age group is out. Oh, good. Yeah, when there's kind of exclusion of a, of a group, whether it's kind of marginalizing the older people or sort of kind of neglecting the younger people and you're not, you kind of become monolithic in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, preschool and the pantser, um, that was the whole focus. And we there nothing for the older people. We weren't even congratulating the older people about mm. Yeah, that's that's bad that's bad when you uh, kind of lop off a, a huge section of the church and don't value people. That that's good. Well we're gonna we're gonna oh go ahead, Shirley. Well,
Yeah. Yeah, kind of being having a negative or kind of superior attitude toward other churches or denominations ridiculing their beliefs even if you disagree. Yeah, that's I would say that that falls in the category of uh, dysfunctional. All right, let me ask you another one related to this. Again, we're talking about 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Do you think it's better to have a strong church or a weak church? You know, what, and you have to kind of explain your answer a little bit. Is it better to have a strong church or a weak church? And again, there's a lot of different ways you can answer that question. So explain your answer. Why or why would you say that? What do you think? Strong church, weak church? Gary? You need to have a strong church that preaches the gospel. Mm-hmm. You feel like the pastors are called to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter about the size. You need to make sure that Strong in uh, in preaching and teaching, not necessarily numbers that, but but really focusing on the word of God, being kind of uh, bold and courageous in the in and compassionate in the preaching of the word. Mm-hmm. Good. Any other thoughts? Strong church, weak church. What do you think, Vera? Mm-hmm. You don't want a church that that's so committed to we're right, we've got it right, and this is the way it is. Well, I mean, okay, not biblically, but you know what I mean. We we need to be aware that we're not perfect, and there are ways we can improve. Mm. Yeah, because a, a strong church, in terms of kind of worldly standards, can almost sometimes morph into an arrogant church. You know, it's saying, hey, we've got this figured out. And, you know, like the dysfunctional church that kind of criticized all the other groups and said, well, we, you know, we're on top of this and, you know, we're, we're there to go. You know, that would be sort of a, a wrong version of, of strength. You know, it's sort of a fake strength. Any other thoughts? Strong church, weak, weak church, Don? Agree with all that. Strong church, but not legalistic. Mm, mm-hmm. So not, so not a legalistic church. That, that is not actually a, a, a mark of strength. That actually could be a form of, well, it is biblically a, a form of weakness because it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ, certainly. All right, let me ask you another one. These are all related to First and Second Corinthians. We touched on this a little bit. Does doctrinal precision unite churches or divide churches? I see both over here. In what way does it unite churches, and in what way does it divide churches? It gives them something to stand behind and support that this is true. Mm-hmm. And it divides because the false teachers are not going to like that. And it's mm. going to weed out those false uh, doctrines. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you say, hey, listen, we're all about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, lived a perfect life, died as a substitute for us on the cross, rose again from the dead. That's something that unites us as believers and Christians. But if you don't agree with that, you're going, it's going to be divisive. You know, Jesus even said that I've come uh, not, not to bring peace, but a sword, but to divide families and divide. So even within our own families, if we have doctrinal precision, it uh, unites us with people that may or may not be part of our immediate you know, biological families, but it can also divide us within our families too, between folks who don't have those those beliefs. Any other thoughts? Yes, Butch. Hmm. Good.
So maybe the the uh, the di it's a difference between knowing what's a major kind of make or break issue versus maybe not quite as much of a uh, make or break issue, sort of a uh, an issue that you would hold with a closed hand versus an issue you'd hold with an open hand. Derek, what do you think? And that's, that's good, that's a good point. It, it unites us and it divides us a little, yes, no, but I think that uh, part of the issue that we're gonna see is that as we walk through these books, uh, Paul engages in a lot of very precise doctrinal talk. He's talking about some very precise issues, speaking in tongues and sexual morality and all these different things. And I think sometimes we can kind of shy away from talking about that sort of stuff because we can say, well, if we bring this up, you know, we'll, it'll be divisive, it'll be negative, it'll be problems. And um, so I think maybe it's about the attitude that we have in discussing these things uh, more than it is about the things that themselves. Now, sadly, you know, there will be divisions in the church. You know, Jesus prayed that we would all be one and that is our prayer and that's our hope. But there are certain practice issues that we're going to just, that are going to unfortunately keep us uh, apart on Sunday mornings on this side of heaven. And, uh, and that's kind of part of where the longing that we have for the coming of Jesus comes in. Uh, we long for Jesus to come, not only to be united with him, though we certainly do, but also to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, discover Probably many of us will be very shocked to learn that some of the things that we were very, very sure about on this side of heaven, uh, we, we could be wrong. And so, and that will be a moment of uh, sort of being perplexed for five seconds of eternity, and then it, it won't matter at all. So, well, okay, these are some of the questions that we're going to address this morning as we look at two of Paul's letters to the Christians in Corinth. Now, even though some of these issue, the issues addressed in these books are very specific to the first century Christians who lived in this ancient city, such as whether or not to eat food sacrificed to idols, that's not usually an issue that comes up for us living in the United States in 2022, uh, or what to do when people get drunk during the Lord's Supper, uh, that would be very, very difficult given that we use tiny, tiny glasses and we do not fill them with an alcoholic beverage, so maybe not quite as applicable. Uh, whether or not women should wear head coverings in worship, not as much of an issue here. Uh, though, one of the things I do appreciate about the black church is the elaborate hats. Uh, I love that so much. I, you know. These two books are also filled with very, very many timeless truths about Jesus and the church gospel. So how do we live, with, uh, live the Christian life with integrity? How do we live the Christian life with hope? And these two books, 1 and 2 Corinthians, show us how. Now let's back up to the beginning. We're going to look a little bit at the uh, author and date. Both these books were written by the Apostle Paul. He identifies himself in the opening verses. Uh, scholars believe that 1 Corinthians was written somewhere between 53 and 55 A.D., and 2 Corinthians was written somewhere between 55 and 56 A.D. Now, we'll situate that by using the book of Acts a little bit, but uh, what significant event happened in the world and in the life of the church right around 30 to 33 A.D.? That's when Jesus was crucified. So the point is that these books were written a couple of decades after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people 
who are biblical scholars will say, oh, well, these things are not reliable at all because they were written you know, 50 years later, 100 years later, 200 years later. That's not the case. This is within the lifetime of many of the people who were still alive when these things took place. We'll see that even in 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul talks about the resurrection and points out that many of the people who saw the resurrection of Jesus were still alive at the time that he wrote these letters. So a very early, early letters to the Corinthian church. Now, what you might not know is that two of Paul's letters to the Corinthians were lost to history. Here are the four books in order. Again, we're missing two of them. Uh, we have missing Corinthians A. We'll call that Corinthians A. That's referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9. We have 1 Corinthians, the book that we have in our Bibles. Then we have missing Corinthians B, which is referenced in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4. And then finally, 2 Corinthians, the book that we have. Does that make sense? Uh, if you now you can the reason why I'd point that out is uh, it might be confusing as you read through the books if you don't know that because you're going to hear him making references to other letters that he wrote and you might think oh okay well I'm reading Second Corinthians so he's referencing First Corinthians but that doesn't quite seem to fit with what he's saying in First Corinthians so again I'm just laying that out for you that there are a couple of missing letters. That's fine. You know, that's we have the letters that God intended for us to have, and they're in our Bibles. All right, uh, destination: the city of Corinth. City of Corinth was located on a major north-south trade route, a route connecting uh, Achaia and Macedonia. You could see the little dot on the on the map. That's the city of Corinth. So um, you could see Athens over here to the east, Olympia. Some of the other cities, uh, Sparta is down south, and these names are familiar to you. Uh, that little isthmus, isthmus, am I saying that correct? correctly, uh, was a major north-south uh, trade barrier. So as a result, uh, the city of Corinth was a multicultural city. We'll learn a little bit more about that. Uh, the original city of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 29 BC. And also, if you want to get me this pencil holder, I think it would be awesome. <laughs> you see that, Julius Caesar with all the pencils in it? Okay, not a lot of uh, Julius Caesar fans this morning. Now, by the time Paul wrote these letters, Corinth was a thriving multicultural city, capital city of the uh, Roman province of Achaia. Uh, D.A. Carson, Doug Moo, and Leon Morris point out uh, because there was no landed aristocracy in the new Corinth, the rebuilt Corinth, uh, there arose an aristocracy of wealth. Inevitably, the poor were correspondingly despised or ignored. The diversity of the city, ethnically, religiously, and economically, contributed to the divisions that we read about in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. As you read about 1st and 2nd Corinthians, for example, you'll hear about how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And Paul will say, listen, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat because you have the rich who are eating uh, their fill and you have the poor who are not getting any food at all. And so again, a very economically diverse and divided city. Okay, a little of the historical background. Uh, Paul preached the gospel in Corinth during his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Uh, during his stay in Corinth, Paul worked as a tent maker along with uh, two of his friends, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who had recently moved to Corinth from Rome. Again, you can read about that in Acts 18, 1 through 3. Though Paul faced some opposition in Corinth, he had a very fruitful ministry there. Many pagans came to faith, as did, the, uh, Jewish, as did many Jewish people, including Crispus, who is described as the ruler of the synagogue. You remember Paul's pattern for ministry. He would go into a city, start preaching the gospel to the Jewish people in the synagogues, 
And then, after being driven out of the synagogues, he would go and preach to the Gentiles in some of the public squares. You know, we get the famous scene of uh, Paul's uh, address on Mars Hill, you know, to the philosophers at Mars Hill. Well, in this case, when he was in Corinth, uh, arguably the most influential Jewish person, the leader of the local synagogue, became a Christian. His name is Crispus, and uh, he is our brother in Christ today because of Paul's successful ministry in the city. Uh, Paul approached Corinth in weakness and in fear. Remember how we talked about strong churches and weak churches earlier? Uh, he approached them in weakness and in fear, but he was emboldened by a dream in which Jesus assured him that God would keep him safe and make his ministry successful. So we read about that in Acts 18, 9, and 10. So again, he comes in weakness and fear, humility, He's strengthened by God through this dream. Paul ministered in Corinth for approximately 18 months before setting sail for Ephesus, Jerusalem, and then later Antioch, where he likely wrote 1 Corinthians, the first letter that we have. Now later, Timothy arrived in Corinth only to discover that the church that Paul had started was a dysfunctional mess. He called for reinforcements and Paul came for a painful visit to Corinth. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a visit in which he confronted the sins that he had found in the church. This painful visit, which he describes, resulted in a second lost letter to the Corinthians, a painful emotional letter in which Paul attempted to reconcile with them. Somebody read 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. Okay, so again, I'm pointing this out because uh, does that, see, for those of you who know the books of Corinthians, does that sound like a good description of 1 Corinthians? No. No, it, it, it doesn't. He's very bold. He's, you know, he's confronting them about these sins in the church. So that, again, is referring to a lost letter uh, that predated uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, with these... Issues in Corinth unresolved, uh, Paul left Ephesus to go to Troas and later Macedonia in response to his famous Macedonian call. Do you remember that? The Macedonian call, which we read about in Exodus. Paul was, uh, excuse me, in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul was still worried about how the Corinthians received his second lost letter, uh, but he was deeply encouraged by a positive report that he received from Titus. You remember Titus? Who is Titus? Let me tell me who Titus was. I hear some whispering, but I do not hear loud voices. I'm half deaf, so you have to speak up. Who is Titus? Older than Paul? Younger than Paul? Younger than Paul. What was his role? What did he do? He was discipled by Paul. Discipled by Paul. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. He was a church planter. Uh, his name we find on the book of Titus. Paul's letter wrote a pastoral letter, two to Timothy, one to Titus. So that's Titus. He's, he's, uh, he, he gave a positive report to Paul about the, the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the anguish that he suffered in his relationship with the Corinthians to paint a picture of the way human weaknesses, and even that includes sort of a relational breakdowns and misunderstandings, uh, point to Jesus who is the suffering Savior. You can read all about that uh, at various places in the book of 2 Corinthians. All right, let's jump in to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians at a glance. Um, 1 Corinthians is an occasional letter. That means it covers a variety of different topics addressed, uh, addressing specific questions that the people in Corinth had asked him. In other words, it was occasioned by specific issues that arose in, in the church in Corinth. There are other letters, which Paul writes, which are more general epistles. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more uh, universally applicable because they're de dealing with uh, principles rather than particulars. 
Does that make sense? First Corinthians is a book about particulars. Now, he uses eternal principles to address those particular issues, but again, you'll find it, he'll say, now concerning this issue which you raised, let me say this, and he'll kind of address those issues. All right, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses the topic of celebrity pastors. Some in the church, I just put his picture there, I think Rick Warren's a neat guy, nothing against him. Uh, some in the church claimed to follow Paul, others followed Apollos, others Peter, and others said, well, hey, forget it, I follow Christ. Uh, do we do that today? If so, how? Have you ever encountered this kind of party spirit to say, well, I follow this guy, or I follow that one? Do that today? Yes. Yes? Okay. In, in what way? Like, what, what does that look like kind of in the modern uh, American church? Denominational wars saying, well, I follow uh, John Calvin. Well, I follow John Wesley, you know, and all the Johns are fighting it out. You know, we've, well, we follow John Knox. We're Presbyterians. You know, we you can kind of uh, put a person over Christ as the head of the church. Yes? I mean, I have a very personal example in that my home church was kind of blown apart when the worship pastor went off and started his own church and the senior pastor took a faction of his people. And so there can definitely be a, people can follow a person rather than the Lord, you know. And then on a, you know, not negative way, people can be very gung-ho over someone's podcast, you know, and we have a lot of people there, they feel like they follow different pastors, you know, on their podcast or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good, good example. It can happen where we elevate the messenger and almost to the level of the message itself. Um, we can take a good thing, which is admiration and appreciation of different Bible teachers, which I certainly have. I read many books. I try to read about five books every month, and I have deep appreciation for the Christian writers that I'm reading. But at the same time, we always have to be careful to avoid sort of a, a partisan or a party spirit where we say, well, I'm with R.C. Sproul, and any, anybody disagrees with him, I don't like him at all, you know, or I'm with John Piper, or I'm with this guy or that guy. Um, appreciation, good. Uh, idolatry, bad. So we don't want to turn the teachers and preachers who teach us the gospel, even the ones we admire deeply, into sort of rivals, uh, for, which can turn us into to a factional uh, church. Uh, Paul combats this partisan spirit by reminding the, uh, the Corinthians of the centrality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. In this section, there's a long discourse on the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. In this section, we find Paul's famous question, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? We often use this as sort of a proof texting for uh, you know, living a healthy lifestyle, and that's certainly true. But in context, what he's saying is, uh, it's not about the person who leads us. Each and every one of us is a vessel of the Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as such, there is a great equality among people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He will uh, go on to say in other of his epistles, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man or woman, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in the sense that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the next issue that Paul addresses is the issue of sexual immorality. He addresses that in chapters 5 and 6. At some point, Paul was told that a man in the church was having an illicit sexual relationship with his father's wife. Paul encourages the church to remove this man from the congregation though he observes it is impossible to have no, no association with sinful people in the world. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 5, 11 and 12. Is it not those inside the church 
Now, do you see the balance that, that Paul is striking there? And I think very applicable to us today is we live in an increasingly uh, post-Christian culture. Uh, we will have uh, relationships with and contact with many, many people in our culture uh, who practice many of the sexually immoral things that happened even in the first century. And a variety of different you know, beliefs and ideas and things. Uh, Paul is not saying have no contact with anyone who is immoral because that would be impossible. But he is saying that morality matters, that purity matters, particularly in terms of sexual morality and sexual purity. And so uh, we do need to have church discipline. We do need to have a formal association or dis, uh, fellowship with someone who is not who is claiming the name of Christ and is living in, in an immoral way. Does that do you see that balance? I think that's very helpful for us as we live in a more and more post-Christian world where we encounter people who practice a variety of different things. All right. In the next section, chapter six, Paul talks about Christians filing lawsuits against other Christians. He says that this should not be done because Christians will one day judge the world and, and as such, they are more qualified to judge trivial cases. So if you have a lawsuit against a fellow Christian, uh, consider going to that person, consider going to the church rather than bring these things up uh, in front of uh, civil courts and things. All right, starting in chapter seven, Paul addresses various issues related to marriage and singleness. In this section, Paul affirms marriage, but he also points out that singleness can be a, a blessing to the church. Paul was very famously not a married man, and he says that uh, he's able to use that single status as a way to serve the church in unique ways. He can sort of put himself in danger in ways that would be irresponsible if he had a, a wife and children and people that he had responsibility for uh, taking care of financially, that sort of thing. Uh, he, address, he advises believers who have unbelieving spouses not to divorce those, their unbelieving spouses. Somebody read verses, verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 16. Does that make sense? So he's saying uh, in this world, people were getting converted all the time. And so someone is already married and they, uh, they're married to an unbeliever. They were an unbeliever when they married that person. One of them comes to faith. I think it would be natural for uh, someone to uh, question or ask, say, okay, well, I'm a believer now. I find myself married to this unbeliever. Uh, we should get a divorce, right? Paul says, mm, not so fast. Uh, stick it out. Stay, stay in there. Um, who knows? God might use you in a profound way uh, to minister to, to your unbelieving spouse. Now, starting chapter 8, Paul addresses the issue of eating food that has been offered to idols. Uh, that was a particular concern in Corinth since most, if not all, of the meat that they were, could purchase at the market had been some way associated with paganism or pagan sacrifices. Uh, back then, the, the butchers of the day were really priests, you know, who would sort of butcher these animals in ritual sacrifices. And so there's a question among the people saying, should we eat that meat? It's been involved with the pagans and the temples, and we used to be pagans. And so there's an issue there. In this section, Paul appeals to the conscience of the believer, a very important issue. He points out that it is not, strictly speaking, wrong to eat meat that has been offered to idols since false gods do not exist and yet this practice might be a stumbling block to people who had previously worshipped those false non-existent uh, gods somebody read first corinthians 8 11 through 13 So, again, how often do we think of our fellow uh, Christians as brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? 
doesn't that really change our perspective on how we deal with these kind of issues of conscience and um, you know, how we relate to one another? And doesn't it motivate us so much to help our brothers and sisters not, not to stumble over these things? Now, what are some of the, uh, now food sacrifice to idols, very particular to that context. How might you apply this kind of weaker brother uh, principle in our current context, our current society? Are there issues that you can think of that might be kind of a cause your brother or sister to stumble uh, type of issue? And how does that relate to conscience and the freedom of your conscience, Christian liberty? Anyone? Alcohol, very uh, uh, prominent one. You know, there are some Christians who very much believe that it is, it is a sin to, to drink or that it is a terrible thing to drink alcohol. Uh, the Bible does not, strictly speaking, prohibit alcohol. Uh, Jesus, of course, the very first miracle, turned water into wine. Uh, but at the same time, it can be a stumbling block for many people. Drunkenness is absolutely a sin. And so many people say, hey, listen, I'm not even going to go there at all. Rather than going anywhere near drunkenness, I just choose to abstain. I'll drink tea, I'll drink coffee, I'll drink water, Coke, whatever you want to drink, but I'm not going there. Um, we can, as Christians, uh, wound our weaker brothers by insulting that person, saying, oh, don't, why are you being, why are you avoiding alcohol? That's not a sin. Why are you doing... I think maybe it's just better to abstain. And if you know somebody who you love is coming over or doesn't drink, man, don't offer them a glass of wine. Don't offer them a beer. Just uh, keep that out of the issue because you don't want to tempt that person into doing something that for them would be a sin because it's violating their conscience. Does that make sense? Any other issue or thoughts? Yes. Yeah, that's, that can, that can, that's probably the biggest one that I can think of uh, kind of in our own cultural context um, about, again, not strictly speaking a sin, as eating food sacrificed to idols was not strictly speaking a sin, and yet people do have, uh, you know, because of their background, being big drinkers, getting saved out of that context, it might be a sin for them to kind of go, go back into that and to sort of live again with sort of one foot in that old life and one foot in the new life, um, whereas it might not be for someone who didn't have that same background. Yes? Yeah, this probably happens to us too often in our circles, but some people feel that it's a real sin to go to a restaurant on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, another, that's another great, great issue. What lines do we draw around the Sabbath? You know, and is it sinful to go to a restaurant? I have uh, wonderful Christian friends who absolutely believe it is a sin to go to a restaurant on Sunday. Um, that is, their, that is their, their conscience convicts them of doing that. Uh, I do not believe it. it is a sin to go to a restaurant on Sunday. And so uh, I'm going to be a little bit sensitive to that person's belief rather than kind of constantly inviting him and sort of trying to convince him, uh, hey, you really should come with me on, uh, to the restaurant on Sunday, and like kind of just nagging him about it and bugging him about it. Uh, why cause your, your brother or sister to stumble? It's just unnecessary, you know, for the sake of you being right, you know, or you being correct, or you winning an argument. It's just, that's not, that's not a, an attitude that promotes unity and peace in, in a church. And that's what these letters are about. All right. Now, starting in uh, chapter 8, uh, Paul addresses the issue of whether women should cover their heads in worship. This is a complex section, primarily because it addresses a number of Roman customs associated with pagan worship. I read all about this issue uh, this week. 
I still don't think I understand it. They were pagans and they worship. The head covering was a whole symbol. So, I don't know, figure it out. Uh, we, don't think it's a, we don't think it's a sin for women to, wear, uh, to cover or not cover their head. Uh, but apparently that was an issue back then. Here's a note from uh, Frank Thielman in the ESV Study Bible. Uh, should you decide to write your doctoral thesis on this very controversial, important issue. Uh, a married woman who uncovered her head in public would have brought shame to her husband. The action may have connoted uh, sexual availability or may simply have been a sign of being unmarried. In cultures where women's head coverings are not a sign of being married, wives do not need to cover their heads in worship, but they could obey this command by wearing some other physical symbol of being married, such as a wedding ring. Okay, so it's, it's a complex issue, but again, they're working through these ideas about Christian liberty and conscience and culture. Uh, now, having addressed the issue of how men and women should relate to one another in worship services, Paul addresses the issue of how the rich and the poor should relate to one another in worship services. As the Corinthians ate the Lord's Supper together, the uh, rich people in the congregations were eating and drinking so much that they were getting drunk, while the poor were going hungry. Uh, what shall I say to you, Paul writes? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. In, in 1 Corinthians 11 is also notable for including the words of institution which we use in the Lord's Supper every week. We're going to be, uh, every week that we do the Lord's Supper, we'll be doing it today. I'll be quoting extensively from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Also included is a word of Fencing, where Paul warns people not to eat in an unworthy, which I take to mean as an unbelieving manner. Uh, if believer, unbelievers come to the table, they will eat and drink uh, judgment to themselves. Um, the logic being that the Lord's Supper is a time where we commune with God through Jesus, who gave his body and shed his blood for us on the cross. If we eat and drink in an unworthy way, if we presume to enter into the Holy of Holies, as it were, apart from Jesus, still clothed in our own sin rather than in the righteousness of Jesus, we are proclaiming an intimacy or claiming an intimacy that we do not in fact have. And in so doing, we invite the judgment of God. Think about the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. Imagine if, you know, just sort of any old person were to sort of pull the curtain aside and to walk in, no sacrifices, no repentance, no prayer, and just sort of, here I am, God, you would fall down dead in a very literal sense because there is no fellowship with God apart from sacrifice, apart from a substitute dying in our place to make atonement for sin. That's the issue. So we'll think about that today as we eat the Lord's Supper together. I've got to speed up a little bit. Uh, in chapter 12, Paul addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. He includes that we all have different gifts and that all spiritual gifts are equally necessary because we are the body of Christ. And as such, each member has a unique role. This is that famous section where he says, you know, essentially... Uh, does the hand say to the foot, I don't need you? Does the, and he goes through the different parts of the body and says that we're the body of Christ. Uh, after discussion of the spiritual gifts, which you might have noticed that I cleverly sidestepped, Paul shows us a more excellent way. The more excellent way is the way of love. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Someone read from 1 Corinthians 13. And then continue with the last verse. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. 
beautiful, just a beautiful chapter, probably one of the most profound discussions of what love looks like in, in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes known as the love chapter. You often hear it read at weddings and different things, but just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scripture. All right, chapter 14, Paul returns to the issue of speaking in tongues. Now, I'm just going to note real quickly that I believe that the gift of tongues was a unique gift uh, given to the first century church as a witness to the power of the Holy Spirit and the truthfulness of the apostolic message. There are Christians who disagree, and we've talked about, you know, sort of these divisions in the church, and that's one of those divisions. There are people today who believe that the apostolic gifts function the exact same way in the modern church as they did in the first century church. I disagree with that. I think it was sort of a, um, a unique gift given, again, to attest to the, uh, the power of the Spirit, the truthfulness of the message, and it was a very functional gift because people were getting saved from a variety of different uh, countries, and they spoke a variety of different languages. Again, there's more we can get into this, too. Um, there's also an aspect of the gift of tongues where Paul mentions that it was a sign uh, not for believers, but for unbelievers, essentially a sign or function of, of judgment. Um, the speaking of tongues was fulfills an Old Testament prophecy that kind of connects it to the day of the Lord and judgment. So it could have been a functional warning to people who are not believers. So again, I won't get into that, but just most of you know, most of you have been here for a little while, uh, we don't speak in tongues in our services because we believe it was a unique gift given to the early church uh, that has fulfilled its purposes. Now we have the written word of God, the, the inspired scriptures, and so those gifts are not necessary in the same way as they were in the first century while the New Testament uh, books were still being written. All right. And uh, now Paul concludes this section by noting that worship, especially in an era where people spoke in tongues, is to be done decently and in order. Uh, this is the uh, life verse of all Presbyterian <laughs> elders. Uh, we do things decently and in order around here. Now, before concluding his letter to the Corinthians with some news about his travel plans and fundraising efforts, uh, Paul delivers his magnum opus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its connection to the resurrection from the dead when Jesus comes again. According to Paul, uh, somebody read from this, 1 Corinthians 15. Keep going. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So again, one of the most uh, profound and uh, important texts on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just two chapters after the, the chapter on love. All right, now I'll get to this uh, more quickly. Now, in 2 Corinthians, following a brief introduction, lengthy Thanksgiving, explanation of his travel plans, uh, Paul begins a lengthy exposition on the Christian ministry. Along the way, he points out that Christians are the aroma of Christ and that the letter kills, but the Spirit uh, gives life. Now, I'll just talk through the rest of the book because we're almost out of time here. We've got to wrap it up. Um, the book of 2 Corinthians is unique because it's probably the most autobiographical of Paul's letters. In these letters, uh, where he addresses the topic of the Christian ministry and defends his own Christian ministry against people who had criticized him for being weak and powerless and not being perhaps the most uh, charismatic speaker, they, they sort of uh, denigrated his ministry, he goes on in the book to describe how uh, they are, the church, the proof of his qualifications to be a minister. Uh, that he came to them in weakness, but God's power was displayed, not because of him and who he is, but essentially through his weakness. 
He goes on to describe that all his beatings, his shipwrecks, all of these terrible things that had happened to him in his ministry, but that these things, far from uh, denigrating his ministry, actually seek to affirm his ministry because when we take up our cross to follow Jesus and suffer for the sake of the gospel, this is an indication that we are truly following Christ and that we are not seeking our own glory or our own uh, reputation in and among the world. Does that make sense? All right, let me jump ahead real quick to the end and we'll conclude. There's, there's more here. Sorry, we, we probably try to bit off more than we could uh, chew. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see. There's the famous thorn in the flesh passage. Again, you should read 2 Corinthians. It's great. Um, jumping ahead, jumping ahead. All right, let's talk about some uh, conclusions, and then we'll pray. Uh, many lessons to be learned from Paul's letters to the Corinthians. The topics covered range from seemingly minor uh, to some of the very major uh, issues. If, if you haven't read these letters in a while, I encourage you to read them again. You may say, oh, these uh, issues are, you know, head coverings and food sacrifice to idols and the weaker brother. I think you'll find in them a beautiful blueprint of the Christian life, um, how to serve others, how to love others, how to sort of take our stand on the truly critical areas, uh, the historical realities of the resurrection of Jesus, and also the lived realities of our love for one another in the church. Okay? I'm going to close with prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word, and particularly for these books, First and Second Corinthians. Lord, uh, try to cover a lot today and try to you know, zip over many, many things. Lord, um, we thank you that we have a lifetime to read these books and meditate on the profound truths contained in them. I pray, Lord, that whenever we read the scripture, that you would use your word to shape in us, that shape us, that we would not simply uh, gain new knowledge, though that's significant, but that we would become new people as your spirit works in and through your word. Bless us, Lord God, and may we be filled with joy as we gather together with all God's people here at Pinewoods to worship you in spirit and in truth. Hear our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.